Sisters, would you open up in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 83? And as you were doing so, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 83. And I, as you're turning there, I specifically want to make mention of a sort of a peculiar word that shows up, I think, just one time outside of the Psalms. That's in the book of Habakkuk. And then it shows up some 70 times in the Psalms. And it's the word selah. And you'll find it there in Psalm 83 at the end of verse 8. And I want you to understand that as we read this psalm, we acknowledge our humility and somewhat our ignorance. We don't know exactly what this word means, though we do know that it isn't part of the inspired text. Most likely, it means something like pause, reflect, slow down, take to heart what we are reading or what they would be singing. And so I say that on the front end because as we read Selah at the end of verse 8, I don't want it to be gibberish to you. With that brief introduction, let's give our attention now to the word of the Lord. Psalm 83, beginning in verse 1. A song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek. Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Augustine once made the remark, Scripture is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child not to drown. And while Augustine was speaking there specifically of John's gospel, I, th I think it's fair to say that that sentiment is true of all of Scripture. This is certainly true, brothers and sisters, of the Psalms, even the imprecatory Psalms. Maybe another way to go after it would be to realize just how gory and edgy 
and rated R, so many of our common Bible stories are. For example, think of Noah's Ark. You'll often see painted on nursery walls a rainbow with Noah's Ark and some happy giraffe head poking out the moon roof. What you don't see are the countless men, women, and children who are drowning in the waters below. Maybe think of Israel's conquest of the land under the leadership of Joshua. Israel takes possession of the land and praise God that the, the promises of God are finding their fulfillment. But remember, to do so, entire nations were devoted to destruction. They were wiped off the face of the earth. Maybe think of perhaps the most familiar of all Bible stories, the one involving David and Goliath. Here is a, a little boy with a slingshot full of stones and courage. It's inspiring if you think about it. What's not so inspiring, of course, is this same young man standing over Goliath's barely cold body, sawing off his head. Finally, the events of Christ's life are marked by certain gore, aren't they? Just think of his crucifixion. Here is a naked man with a crown of thorns wedged upon his head, spikes driven through his wrists and feet. And as the birds come to feed upon his flesh, this worm of a man expires, unable to breathe. Now, my point in all of this is to simply remind you and I that Scripture is chock full of pain and of blood and of suffering and of terror and of death. And brothers and sisters, Psalm 83 is no exception. Same song, just a slightly different tune. Well, for those of you that have been with us for the last couple of months, we come this morning to the conclusion of our sermon series in the Psalms, what I've dubbed Songs for Sinners and Saints. At the end, we come now to what are called imprecatory psalms or psalms of imprecation. In short, these are psalms where the psalmist explicitly calls upon God to curse, to judge, to destroy his enemy. These are, to say it differently, very gruesome psalms. Remember, these are songs. The people of God would sing these as they gathered for worship. These are gruesome songs where the people of God are calling down calamity and destruction. God's anger and judgment upon His enemies. And I should add that these psalms are hardly a minority. In other words, Psalm 83 is not lonely. Let me just share a, a couple of quick examples. Psalm 7 sings, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Psalm 35 begins this way, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. The psalmist says, take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Psalm 58 is 
perhaps the most pointed of all of these psalms. That's where we hear the psalmist cry out, Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. A couple of verses later in that same psalm, we sing, The righteous will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. This is striking language. Psalm 109 is equally haunting. May his days be few, may another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his posterity be cut off, may his name be blotted out in the second generation. Brothers and sisters, again, these are songs where the people of God are singing of God's enemies being cursed. Perhaps most famously, or I should say infamously, Psalm 137 records these gruesome words. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Now church, I have given you just a small sampling. And I do so because I have no intention of of putting you off or of being unnecessarily provocative this morning. I do so because I don't want you to think for a moment that Psalm 83 is sort of a a hiccup in the Psalter. It's not. There are handfuls of imprecatory psalms. And Psalm 83, like all imprecatory psalms, is a cry for God's intervention. And without God's intervention, the people of God would be wiped out. Maybe another way to say it would be this. If God doesn't wipe out their enemies, their enemies will wipe them out. Either way, the tone of the psalm is someone has to die. Someone has to be on the receiving end of judgment. That's sort of imprecatory psalms from 30,000 feet. What I wanted to do for the remainder of our time this morning is focus specifically on Psalm 83. And and I want you to see that that the heaviness of this psalm, it is seen and it is felt and it is heard and is it experienced by you and I noting how it consists really of three desperate pleas. First, there is a plea for God to hear and help. Then, for God to defend and destroy And then it ends with a plea for God to shame and save. Let's begin with the plea for God to hear and help. We we have to back up for a moment and recognize this is how the psalm begins. The psalm begins because the enemies of God's people are on the prowl. Verse 2 is clear. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. The point is, this is a dire situation indeed, and that's because the enemy has, verse 3, the enemy lays crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. So what is their aim, you ask? In a word, extinction. You can almost hear the the fear and trembling in the voice of the psalmist there in verse 4. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. 
Now, I think it's worth pausing and saying, normally, under normal circumstances, this wouldn't be the end of the world. And I say that because God has his people's back, right? Except he doesn't. Except he doesn't, right? That's the problem here in the psalm, right? God is nowhere to be found. Verse 1 sets the stage. Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. Rather than God speaking to his people in this time of distress, God is silent. Rather than God declaring war on these enemies, God is at peace with them. And rather than God rousing himself and moving to action, God appears to be still. And it's all of this, this divine inertia that is enough to utterly petrify Asaph, the psalmist. You see, church, it's not the presence of enemies that worries the psalmist. It's the absence of God. And I think this is something that we too can sink our teeth into. Sometime, sometimes Christians are surprised when evil men rise up against us. But brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised at all. In fact, we should expect it. The Apostle Paul, you will remember, warns his young protege Timothy. He says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Church, do you desire to live a godly life? Well, you are warned that it comes with a cost. In John 16, the Lord Jesus seeks to prepare his disciples by telling them, in the world you will have tribulation. In Christ's most famous sermon, he says these words, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We're barely scratching the surface, but the point is conflict is not the issue. We should all expect conflict as followers of Christ. What's the problem then? Well, the problem happens when God goes silent in the midst of that conflict. What happens when you're in the middle of it and God is absent? Christian, what happens when you are all alone and you are left all by yourself to stare down evil and wickedness and pain and in all of this, Christ is aloof? That's how the psalmist felt. Now, we don't know all of the sort of historical details that give rise to this psalm. But we can tell from the text itself that there is some confederate of nations that have turned their greedy eyes on God's people. They are listed there for you in verses 6, 7, and 8. I'll spare you the geography lesson this morning. But suffice it to say, these various nations, they are the ones who pretty much surround Israel. So the picture that is painted is this. You have God's people encircled on all sides, not by friends, but foes. And again, as this army is bearing down upon God's people, seeking to wipe them off the map, God is silent and God is still. 
It's as if God has fallen asleep at the wheel, or even worse than that, it's as if God is wide awake but just doesn't care. You ever felt that way? I know that I have. You ever felt that way when countries are on the brink of war? When marriages are falling apart? When nine-year-old children are being executed at school? When cancer is ravaging your body? When your children are apostatizing from the faith? There's not enough money in the bank to pay the bills. You're seeking at home and in your neighborhood and in your workplace to, to be faithful and to honor Christ and, and to follow His Word. And it seems that all you are being met with is, is resistance, whether it be from your, your wife or your neighbors or your boss. And as you are going through all of this, as you are enduring these trials, it seems as if you are doing so all alone. The Father's love appears to be distant. Christ's presence is absent. And the Holy Spirit's comfort is altogether lacking. You ever felt that way? I know I have. And I hate to be that guy. But if you haven't, Christian, you will. You will. There will be hours and days, and weeks, and months, and even years, Christian, when it feels as if God has utterly hidden himself from you. And he has done so in the midst of suffering, trials, affliction, or persecution. Now, I don't pretend to know all of the reasons why God does this. I don't know why when disaster strikes, it seems, at least from where we are sitting, that God is deaf, blind, and not interested. I don't know those answers, but I do know this. I know that God will often wait. And then he'll wait. And then he'll even wait some more. So that waiting and trusting and ugly words like endurance and perseverance and steadfastness, they become to us like the asparagus of the Christian diet. It doesn't taste good, but it is good for us. Think for a moment. Just think of Israel with their backs to the Red Sea and all the armies of Egypt enraged, mind you barreling down upon them. And it is only when they are on the brink of being swallowed up by their adversaries does God finally decide to part the Red Sea and allow them to walk through and for the Red Sea to swallow them. Did God have to wait till the last moment? Yes. Consider Abraham. God sends him up high on a mountain to sacrifice his only son. And God waits until that knife is inches, just inches away from being buried into the chest of his son before God speaks and says, hey, there's a ram in the thicket. You might think of Christ's disciples. We have recorded in the Gospels the story of how uh, these 12 men were caught in a storm. 
Seasoned fishermen's no doubt, but they were terrified for their lives, suspecting that all would perish. All the while, where is Christ? He is sleeping at the bottom of the boat. And it is only after waking Christ from his siesta that these disciples are spared. Speaking of Christ, it appeared that his death on the cross was the last word. It's difficult for us because we, we know what happened three days later. Three days later, but, but when Christ died, all the hopes of God's people died with him. Especially as they witnessed his lifeless corpse being peeled away from that bloody cross and stuffed in a tomb. It's all over. But three days later, Christ rose up from the dead. And once again, God intervened. But here's the point that I want you to see. God intervened not in the way that God's people anticipated Him to intervene. Or to make the point even sharper, God rarely intervenes and does things according to our timetable. And so often this is where we falter. And not only do we want God to do things our way, we want God to do things our way on our watch. The church rarely does God oblige us in that way. Now I trust for some of you and perhaps all of you that this is resonating in your heart. This cry out, this crying out to God for Him to hear, for Him to help. Notice the psalmist doesn't end with just that plea. He quickly shifts to a second desperate plea, and that is to defend and to destroy. In other words, it's as if Asaph is saying, Lend not just your ear, O God, but unsheath your sword and go to work. Defend me. Defend your people. Destroy my enemies. Destroy your enemies. The psalmist's approach at this juncture is not unique. What he does, specifically in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, is draw upon God's resume. That is to say, God has a track record of defending his people and of defeating or destroying his enemies. And so, to make his case, the psalmist draws upon several incidents from the book of Judges. To begin with, you have Midian in verse 9, and then a list of cats named Oreb, Zeba, and Zalmunna down in verse 11. And in God's good providence, if you are doing our church reading plan, this all comes from Judges 7 and 8. So I trust that it's fresh in your memory. You will remember Gideon, after having his large army pared down to just 300 men, what does he do? He then goes out with God's help, and those 300 men defeat 32,000 Midianites. And then, for good measure, what does Gideon do? But he hunts down Oreb and Zeb, Midianite princes, along with Zeba and Zalmunna, Midianite kings, and he kills all of them. That's the point. He kills every single one of them. The other episode, the one involving Sisera and Jabin, it comes from Judges 4. Both these individuals, Sisera and Jabin, they were Canaanite generals. And if you know the story, 
Sisera met his fate when a woman named Jael drove a tent spike through his skull, literally nailing him to the ground. Jabin is less dramatic. We are told that he was captured and executed. So what's the point of Asaph's history lesson here? Well, all of these forces, these enemies, these nations, they were bigger and badder than Israel. And yet, God intervened in such a way to defend his people and to destroy his enemies. And so here in Psalm 83, Asaph is saying, in effect, Lord, you've done all of this before. Would you please do it again? That's the flavor of verses 13, 14, and 15. We read, Oh my God, make them, make my enemies, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Can't help but think of the lovely weather we experienced yesterday. I saw Volkswagens and small children flying across our front yawn. As the fire consumes the forest, verse 14, As the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Wipe them out. Undo them. Leave nothing left. Defend and destroy. Again, that's the tone. That's the flavor. And I want you to recognize that the tone and flavor of this this psalm is a heavy one. It's a spicy But it's not done. Because the last few verses bring forth the final desperate plea. And that is for God to shame and to save. To shame and to save. Verse 16 heralds, fill their faces with shame. Why? That they may seek your name, O Lord. Verses 17 and 18 are along similar lines. Let them, that is, again, the enemies of God, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. Verse 18, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. I would pause and I would ask you, congregation, do you hear, even in this imprecatory psalm, the glorious sound, the glorious glorious longing, even for redemption? Shame our enemies, O God. But also, if you see fit, save them. Work in them in such a way where they, verse 16, may seek your name, O Lord. Break them so that they, verse 18, may know that you alone are the most high over all the earth. Brothers and sisters, we can't afford to miss this, this this paradox that exists in the mind of Asaph. I will submit to you that exists even in our own hearts, doesn't it? We want God to judge. But at the same time, we long him to convert. I don't know about you, but I often find myself praying for God to bring about redemption even as I rage in my own soul. I felt this way yesterday, to be quite honest with you. I was informed 
that a local restaurant in Richland a week from today is hosting a drag brunch for Easter in which all adults are only $10 and children are 5 And so come and celebrate Easter. Have lunch and experience a drag show. This is not Seattle or Portland. This is in our backyard. It ought to make us rage. It ought to infuriate us. The evil, the wickedness, the subjecting of children to sexual denigration. And at the same time, our hearts ought to break. Our hearts ought to be heavy for how in rebellion our current system is in to God. We find ourselves conflicted, destroyed, yes. But God, would you deliver too? Christ is king and Christ will conquer and is conquering and will continue to conquer and we long for that. But at the same time, we also long for our foes to be our friends, do we not? And this happens in and through the gospel. Well, if your heart is ever torn like that, you are in good company. Because that's what we see in Psalm 83. What do we see? We, we see hear and help, defend, destroy, shame and save while you're at it. Wipe them all out. But also, wash them clean. Punish our enemies. And also, purge from them evil and make them yours. In a lot of ways, it's as if Asaph is just crying out for God to do something, to do anything, right? Back to verse 1. Whatever you do, God, don't do nothing. Do something. And brothers and sisters, I am tempted to think that it's at this point that we find so much in common with the psalmist. Our biggest fear, and perhaps rightly so, is for God to do nothing. And that terrifies us, especially when we are in the midst of disaster. And yet, to come full circle, as much as we don't like it, our God is often in the business of waiting. And so that means that our job, too, then, is to wait. To wait upon God in prayer. To trust that His timing is best. To be convinced that no matter what we see going on around us, that God is, in fact, in charge of it all. But even with that being said, questions still remain. No matter how you slice all of this up, this is still an imprecatory psalm, which means, again, that the psalmist is, in no uncertain terms, calling down God's wrath upon his enemies. Again, this is a song. This is what the people of God would sing. This is what they would pray. They would sing and pray for God to curse. And for many of us, especially us moderns, this sort of makes the hairs on our arms stand up a bit, doesn't it? We wonder, well, should these psalms even be in the Bible? And if so, how do they relate to us today, especially in light of Christ's clear command for us to love our enemies? 
Well, here's what I want to do. I want to say, yes, yes, yes. These psalms are good and glorious, and they belong to the church. More than that, we should use them. We should pray them. We should sing them. These are not relics of a bygone religion. This, just as much as the Gospel of John or Philippians, is inspired Scripture for us. Scripture that is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We do not have the luxury to Thomas Jefferson this whole thing and just sort of cut out pages of the Bible that we don't like or that do not fit in with our preconceived notions of what God should be like. But at the same time, I do want to offer three cautions. Three cautions about these psalms in particular. And then I want to offer three reasons why these psalms serve us well. So three cautions and three reasons. Here we go. Caution number one. When we pray and sing for curses to fall, we must distinguish between cursing our personal enemies, ourselves, and God calling upon, and calling upon God to curse our enemies. In, in other words, it is one thing for us to curse. It is quite another for us to ask God to curse. And there's a difference. Christians, we are not a people who are out for blood. We are not operating from a mindset of revenge or spite. And we must be ever careful to not allow psalms of imprecation to be used in our hearts to foster violence or selfishness, or a vain pursuit of our own glory. Remember, we are to be concerned chiefly with God's glory, not our own. And Christ has called us to suffer. Just as for Him, the crown of thorns precedes the crown of glory, so it is for us as Christians and as a church. The crown of thorns will precede the crown of glory. That leads to a second caution. Remember, beloved, that God is sovereign, not us, and that includes the dispensing of his wrath. Here's what I mean. We might pray for God to destroy a wicked ruler or to bring down his wrath upon an evil empire or to completely wipe out an evil restaurant like the Emerald of Siam. But whether or not that hammer falls is ultimately up to God. It is his prerogative to judge. And it's not just his prerogative to judge, but it is also his prerogative with the timing of that judgment. I would remind you that the Canaanites were wicked to the core of their being. But in Abraham's day, there was still some 400 years before that wickedness would provoke God to snuff them out. 400 years is a long time, brothers and sisters. You and I tend to want these things worked out by the weekend. Rarely does God do it that way. That brings us to caution number three. 
we must fight the urge to divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament. Let me elaborate. I think that for many of us, we are prone, for whatever reason, to sort of ignore the Old Testament. It's out of sight, it's out of mind, or worse, it's not out of sight or out of mind, but it's just not important. But church, the Psalter, including the imprecatory psalms that are found therein, they belong to the church. Hear me well. As much as we might love City of Light or uh, the Wesleys or Matt Papa, this is our only inspired hymnal. And when we neglect it, we do so to the peril of our own souls. It's also not that easy to just divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament anyway. And I say that because the New Testament itself contains various imprecations. It's, it's not like you can just close the first two-thirds of your Bible and just sort of live around in that last third and think that you're not going to be confronted with this type of stuff. For example, at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul issues these sober words. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Or, as the older translation that King James put it, let him be anathema. You see the same language in Galatians 1. Paul warns, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And that word accursed or anathema, as you can imagine, it is a strong one. It is the idea of let him be condemned to the lowest parts of hell. Speaking of Galatians, a little later in that same letter, Paul employs something of a colorful metaphor. His opponent, those who were trying to add circumcision to sola fide. They were saying one needed more than simply faith to stand right in God's sight. What you actually needed to do was get circumcised among other things to such a dangerous and devilish teaching, the apostle responds with these warm, heartfelt words. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In other words, if y'all think you're so holy by trimming off body parts, why not go all the way? Circumcision is merely JV. If you really want to be on the varsity squad, then just cut the whole thing off. You can detect a little sanctified sass in the Apostle Paul. And we could do with a little, about, a little of that ourselves. Think of 2 Timothy 4, how Paul spoke of one named Alexander the coppersmith. The Apostle says, He did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Make no mistake about it. Paul is thinking nothing less, looking forward to the day in which God will judge this wicked man. Speaking of judgment, the book of Revelation is pregnant with imprecations. I'll just share one with you for the sake of time. The souls of those who were slain for Christ, what was their cry? Revelation 6.10 records, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You hear it? 
how long, God, until you do to them what they did to us? They shed our blood, so you ought to shed their blood. Consider Christ himself. In Matthew 23, we have some of the harshest words ever recorded to come from the mouth of our Lord. And I say that because there, in Matthew 23, you will find a repeating chorus, one that begins like this, Woe to you. And every one of those woes is followed upon by Christ lighting up those religious leaders like a Christmas tree, pronouncing a host of curses upon them. So the point not to be missed, congregation, is that you can't just close the Old Testament as if it and it alone contains so-called harsh words. The New Testament as well contains various imprecations. So with those cautions, allow me to mention now three reasons. Three reasons for imprecation. Here is why we should sing and pray these rough and rowdy psalms. Reason number one, such psalms alert us to the sin and suffering of our world. Old and New Testament alike, imprecatory songs and prayers, they remind us, they put front and center, beloved, that this life is often cruel and hard and painful. Unfortunately, this side of glory is often marked by injustice and by suffering and by violence. And here's why these imprecatory psalms, and I should add psalms of lament as well, here's why they are so helpful. These psalms, beloved, they give us words. They give us words to vocalize our longing for truth, for justice, for retribution, for heaven, for righteousness. They they really give us a grammar for the whole emotional experience of the Christian life. Reason number two. Imprecatory psalms are good because they alert us to the reality of hell and the coming judgment. Brothers and sisters, the flood of Noah's day, the horrors of Joshua's conquest, the the uprooting of of nations from their lands, the, the horrid cries, the paralyzing loneliness, the revulsion of death, All of this pain that characterizes so much of Scripture and so much of our lives, please hear this, it all pales in comparison to the reality of hell. How can I say that? How can your worst suffering here be the size of a marble and hell the size of a planet? Well, for for starters, hell is eternal. And if that wasn't scary enough, hell is the place of God's eternal, unmitigated judgment being poured out upon sinners like you and I who have broke God's law. You see, that is what makes hell infinitely more terrifying. Three gazillion years in hell, you will not be one day closer to escaping 
hell. Which means that none of us, none of us, have ever experienced even a modicum of the terror of hell in this life. Our worst day here is still light years away from our best day in hell. And so in a lot of ways, what these psalms are doing is that they remind us that judgment is coming. Think of them as big, neon, flashing lights trying to get our attention. They raise their voice, and they shout at us, and they warn us of what is to come. The evil that surrounds us, the injustices that occur, the tyranny and the wickedness God promises us, it will not go unpunished. So that Sisera's skull being punctured by a tent spike is a foreshadowing of the pain of hell. Or a Benzeb being cut down, it is a preview of the gruesome horror that is to come. Zeba and Zalmunna's fate, it isn't even worthy to be compared to what hell will be like. Scripture warns us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And again, these rough and rowdy psalms, they give us a preview, a trailer, if you will. Finally, and this is reason number three for these kinds of psalms, they alert us to what Christ suffered in our place. You see, brothers and sisters, what Christ tasted on the cross was the very cup of God's wrath. And he did not just sip that cup, but he drank it down all the way to its dregs. What Christ saw on that cross was the Father turn his back on him and leave him all to himself. What he felt was not just the spikes and thorns, but the very sword of God's holy justice unsheathed and plunged into his soul. He didn't just hear the jeering of the crowds that day. He heard the taunts of devils. And beloved, As he hung there on that cross, he didn't just touch the wood of the cross upon his lacerated skin. What Christ does is reach out and touch us by becoming one with us. This is why the cross is such a wonderful and mysterious and beautiful and terrifying specimen. Christ faced God's wrath so that we wouldn't. Christ was made a curse to spare us. As Calvin would say, Christ underwent hell and judgment upon that cross. Brothers and sisters, so that we would have heaven and favor. I think we can say it this way. In a a very profound sense, 
Christ was found on the receiving end of an imprecatory psalm as he hung there on that cross. As the law of God thundered, demanding justice, demanding blood be spilled. For Christ was made a sin for us. And because of his sacrifice, because our sin was imputed to him, because he was reckoned, charged to be a sinner, the worst of sinners, we then are counted, reckoned as just in God's sight. You see, Christian, wrath fell down upon Christ so that grace would fall down upon you and I. Brothers and sisters, we have one who endured imprecation so that we would never have to face the curse of God. Let's thank God. Our Father, we are so often weak and fearful apathetic we confess our sin to you this morning we thank you for psalms like this that we trust your spirit uses to rouse us from our slumber we pray that you would help us to see that what we deserve is death and that you would help us to see the glory of Christ to endure death on our behalf we pray that you would help us to think through these psalms clearly and faithfully as Christians and as a church that we would see your word to be what it is, good and true and right, more valuable than gold, yes, much fine gold, and, and sweeter to our taste than the honeycomb. Lord, we thank you. We recognize that, that the experience of Asaph is not one that is unique. We are those who have been touched and scarred and gripped by pain and by loss and by sorrow. We thank you that we have a refuge in Christ. And we thank you that your word, in particular this psalm, gives us words to cry out and to sing to you. We pray that you would encourage us, that you would build us up, that you would fit us and equip us for this week that you have ordained for us. That whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we might do so for the glory of you, O God, our Father. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior, your Son. And God's people said, Amen.